Duke's Mayo. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it, too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Duke's is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Duke's. It's got twang. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. In September 2021, 19-year-old college student Mia Marcano abruptly stops communicating with her loved ones and misses a scheduled flight home. Her family instantly knows something is wrong and launches an unofficial investigation of their own, bringing them face-to-face with Mia's killer. They demand answers, but instead they're met with a brutal twist leading to more questions. This is Mia's story. At around 6.30 on the evening of Friday, September 24th, 2021, Ema Scabriel's phone rings at her home on the island of St. Thomas. On the other end is the voice of her adult son, Marlon Marcano Jr., who's 1,100 miles away in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He's calling because he's worried about his younger sister, 19-year-old Mia Marcano, who lives, works, and goes to school in Orlando, which is about a three-hour car ride from Marlon and the rest of the Marcano family in Fort Lauderdale. The first thing Marlon tells his mom is that he can't find Mia. From the seriousness in her son's voice, Ema's on edge immediately. She clarifies, what do you mean you can't find Mia? Marlon can't hide his anxiety as he explains he can't get a hold of her. Mia hasn't returned any of his texts, phone calls, or messages on social media. His first call was at 6 p.m. And since then, he's called over and over for the last 30 minutes without success. There's nothing but radio silence on Mia's end. He believes her phone may be turned off or out of battery because every call he's made to Mia's phone goes straight to voicemail. So to me, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, 30 minutes without contact with your sister, it just doesn't seem like a very long time, but it clearly was a red flag for him. I thought that too. But here's why that was such a red flag for Marlon and Ema. This situation is something that is completely out of character for Mia, who comes from a tight-knit family and is in constant communication with them. And look, I get it. Everyone's definition of staying in touch is different. It's subjective, after all. For some people, texting the same person once a day is a lot. And for others, texting the same person 50 times a day is normal. So I want to clarify, in Mia's case, when I say constant communication, I mean all day, every day. Paula Zahn and her true crime series on the case with Paula Zahn covered Mia's case in season 24's episode 12 titled, Where is Mia? 
I bring this up for three reasons. One, it's one of my resources. Two, Paula spends the first five minutes of the episode driving home the frequency of Mia's contact with her family. And she goes into great detail about a handful of the conversations she had on that fateful Friday, September 24th. And three, there's an exchange between Paula and Ema that I wanted to include in today's episode. When Paula Zahn asked Mia's mom, Ema, quote, how closely in touch did Mia stay with you and other members of the family? Her mom answers, Mia doesn't go a day or hour without talking to somebody in the family, whether it's me, her dad, her brother, her cousins, her friends. With that in mind, Friday, September 24th starts like any other day. Most of Mia's conversations begin early in the morning and they continue throughout the day while she's at work at the leasing office for the Arden Villas apartment complex where she also lives on the first floor. But then she stops responding around 5 p.m. without any forewarning. And it's especially odd because she was in an active conversation with an unnamed friend. The abrupt end to the conversation didn't sit right with the friend because she left them on red, something she would never do. I'm going to read the last three texts in that exchange, and it goes as follows. Mia says, done working. She follows it up with, going to the airport. The friend responds at 5.06 p.m., what time? Mia reads the message, but never replies, and she never would reply again. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. We established that the timing in general was a red flag for the brother, but I'm wondering, did the brother know about this person also losing contact with Mia? No, he didn't learn about the conversation until after he and his mom had reached out to family, asking if they'd heard from Mia. But I'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk about her plans for that evening. Mia was also scheduled to fly home to Fort Lauderdale that weekend to visit her dad, her brother, and the rest of her extended family. Her plan was simple. She'd clock out of work at 5 p.m. when her shift ended, collect her luggage from her apartment, and then head to the airport for her 8.50 p.m. flight. It should be no shock that people in her life, like her brother, know of her plans. So when Mia doesn't answer his calls, he starts to panic. Did she get in a car accident on the way to the airport? Is she going to make her flight? Why hasn't she reached out to anyone? And other people were waiting to hear from her as well. Even though her mom, Ema, lives on St. Thomas, she was expecting to chat with Mia later that evening because Ema wanted to make sure that Mia made it to the airport safe and sound, you know, like a mom does. One of the last things she told Mia was, quote, don't forget to call me. Her dad, Marlon Sr., was also expecting to hear from Mia. The last time the two spoke, Mia was still at work, so Marlon kept it brief and told her to text him when she clocked out. In a People Magazine article about the case, Gabrielle Chung writes about Marlon Sr.'s last communication with his daughter, saying, quote, she had an hour left for work, recalled her father, who was flying into Fort Lauderdale from Los Angeles. I told her I loved her and text me when she got off work. I will still be flying, she replied back. Love you too, and that 
prerequisite. With all of that in mind, it makes sense that Marlon Jr. began to worry and sounded the alarm when he couldn't get in touch with his sister. Mother and son worked together with the hopes of finding Mia, Marlon Jr. from his home in Fort Lauderdale, and Ema 1,100 miles away on St. Thomas. They contact everyone and anyone who would have had contact with Mia. And by 6.45, 15 minutes after Marlon Jr. called his mom, news of Mia's disappearance spreads like wildfire through the family. Among the friends and family Ema reaches out to is Kaylee, Mia's cousin slash BFF. They did everything together and talked all the time. Kaylee and Mia exchanged Snapchats throughout the day, but their conversation came to a standstill around 5 p.m. as well. She reaches out to Mia once more, hoping and praying that this is all a big misunderstanding, letting her know that everyone is worried and to please get in touch with someone so they know that she's okay. But a response never comes and it never would. Then Kaylee remembers she can check Mia's location through a feature on her phone. They had started sharing locations with one another when Mia moved to Orlando to attend Valencia College the year prior. But when Kaylee logs on to the app, she isn't able to access the last place Mia's phone pinged. Instead, it says, quote, no location found, which confirms what Marlon Jr. thought to be true, that Mia's phone was either off or the battery wasn't charged. Now their only lead is Mia's flight. Ema calls the airline, explains the situation, hoping the employee on the other end of the phone can answer some questions. But she's shut down. The airline can't give the family any information about whether or not Mia boarded. That may have been a dead end, but the family knows when and where the flight lands. They were going to pick her up. Marlon Jr. and his grandmother race to the airport, cautiously hopeful that Mia is on the 850 flight to Fort Lauderdale telling themselves maybe she forgot her phone charger and they'll all go home together when she lands. So they wait and wait and wait filled with anxiety, desperate to be wrong about Mia being in trouble. But they soon learned their gut instinct was right all along. Because when the plane lands and the passengers make their way to the baggage claim and finally the exit, Mia isn't among them. Mia's grandmother then relays the news to Ema who recalls the moment in her interview with Paula Zahn saying, when her grandmother called and said she's not on that plane, that's where I think my soul shattered. Heartbroken, but unwilling to give up, Mia's family pushes forward in their search for her. They now know it's time to get the authorities involved. While Ema reports Mia missing to the Orlando Sheriff's Department, telling them, quote, there's something wrong, I can't find her. Three cars filled with relatives, including her dad, her brother, grandmother, cousin Kaylee, and another cousin named Simone, among others, caravan to Orlando, terrified of what they might find when they arrive. The first social media post about Mia's disappearance is also made around this time by Kaylee. It's simple and to the point. The word missing in big red letters is at the top, and her physical stats, five feet tall, 130 pounds, dark brown hair, green eyes, accompany a photo of smiling Mia wearing an orange top. The police waste little time beginning the investigation into Mia's disappearance. In fact, it's just 20 minutes after her mother made the call that the responding officer arrives at Mia's ground floor apartment at 10.02 p.m. I've been so focused on Mia's flight and Mia's place of work where she was before, my mind sort of drifted away from the fact that she was going home in between the airport and work. 
I'm curious now though, what kind of information did they find once they got into Mia's apartment? The officer finds nothing at first because he can't get inside. He knocks on the door, but nobody's home. The officer then walks around to the back of the apartment and uses his flashlight to look through the apartment's windows. From his limited view of the interior, there doesn't seem to be anything out of the ordinary. A few minutes later, at 10.21 p.m., Mia's roommate arrives and lets the officer inside. His initial suspicions are confirmed as he enters. He sees nothing unusual in the kitchen or the living room. But when he arrives at the door to Mia's bedroom, he can't get inside because the door's locked. Is having her door locked something Mia did often? According to the roommate, Mia was known to occasionally lock her bedroom door when she left. And we know that she was planning to go to the airport on a trip. So it only makes sense. And I get it. It's not like you don't trust your roommate, but if they have people over, you just want to be safe. Anyway, the deputy tries a few ways to get the door open, but it doesn't budge. He doesn't want to break the door down just yet, so he and the roommate walk back outside and take a second look through Mia's bedroom window, trying to find a way inside. Then bingo. They notice the window isn't locked, which worried loved ones. Because as we later learn, her dad installed security locks on the windows when she moved in, and they were always activated. In fact, Ema told Paula Zahn, quote, her dad placed security locks on her windows. Mia would never unlock her windows. But for now, the unlocked windows proved to be helpful because the officer now has access to Mia's bedroom. The deputy has the roommate climb through the window to unlock the door while the officer walks back to the other side of the apartment building and enters through the front door. Their plan works. The roommate makes her way through the window, but as soon as the roommate turns on the light, she finds something unusual. The door is barricaded. Whoever created the barricade did so by putting a small white piece of shelving furniture in front of the door, preventing it from opening. Which brings up more questions like, why did someone do this? And how did they ultimately get out? The unlocked window now makes sense though, because it was the only other way out of the bedroom. The roommate manages to push it out of the way and lets the officer inside. The documentary includes actual footage of the bedroom that night, and at first glance, Mia's bedroom is tidy and feminine with accents of purple. There's a purple cord light outlining one of the walls, a ruched headboard, and gray-purple curtains over the window that matched her bedspread. There's also other personal touches too, like a collage with photos of Mia and her friends. Her dresser is in front of the bed with a TV on it and a standing mirror in the corner. However, For those who know Mia, the state of the room is not up to her regular standards. Her cousin Kaylee acknowledges this in an interview saying, quote, her room always looked exactly the same. Everything was put in its place and very, very neat, but her room was messy. There was like dirt tracks on the carpet. Dirt isn't the only thing on the carpet either. The officer finds two other worrisome pieces of possible evidence. First, he notices something shiny on the floor. When he picks it up, he discovers it's a gold necklace with Mia's name on it, the chain broken. There's no reason that specific necklace should have been anywhere except around Mia's neck, let alone on the floor. Mia never took it off. In fact, if you look at a lot of the pictures of Mia available online, you'll notice that necklace in almost every single photo. The officer then finds a rusty yellow box cutter, which did not belong to Mia or any of her roommates. And nobody knows who the owner is, but someone took the time to hide it under the rug. And perhaps the most troubling finding is the small patch of dried blood found on Mia's pillowcase. 
everything the police found, all of this evidence, blood on the pillow, locked and barricaded door, broken necklace on the floor, etc., sounds the alarm for investigators. Something isn't right, and it's clear that there may have been a struggle in the bedroom. Mia is officially declared a missing person by the Orlando County Sheriff's Office at 1.36 a.m. on Saturday morning, eight hours since her last communication. Two and a half hours after that, just after 4 a.m., the three cars with Mia's family members, remember her father, brother, grandmother, and a few cousins were traveling there from Fort Lauderdale, well, they arrive and they join the search. After meeting with investigators, the family felt that the police weren't taking the situation as seriously as they should be. There wasn't a sense of urgency, and the family couldn't understand why not. Everything told them that Mia had become a victim of foul play, but they just couldn't think of a reason or a person who'd want to hurt her. I mean, it's not like she had any enemies. So they started their own investigation because they felt they had no other choice. Mia's cousin Kaylee talks to Paula Zahn about the decision her family made, telling her, quote, we were all putting ourselves into that detective mode. Not long after her arrival, Kaylee happened to look out of Mia's bedroom window when something caught her attention in the parking lot behind the apartment. A silver car pulls into a space in the lot and the driver, a man, sits behind the wheel smoking a cigarette as he watches the commotion surrounding Mia's apartment. Then Kaylee and the man get eye contact, prompting an unusual reaction from him. He panics, reverses the car, hits the car behind him, but he doesn't stop. Instead, he completes a three-point turn and speeds toward the front of the building. But in a twist of fate, his attempt to get away isn't successful. Instead, he comes face-to-face with members of Mia's family when he almost mows down Mia's other cousin, Simone, in the apartment's front parking lot. The responding officer is still on scene, fortunately, and forces the driver out of the vehicle. And thanks to Kaylee's quick thinking, there's cell phone footage of the encounter between the driver and the officer. The driver's in his late 20s wearing what appears to be a long black sleeve shirt, or maybe it's even a hoodie, and loose basketball shorts. His face and hands are swollen, and he talks somewhat animatedly with the officer. When out of nowhere, he suddenly asks, y'all looking for Mia? The family is stunned almost into silence. How did this stranger know Mia and the fact that she was missing? It's not long before the family members find their voices and start barraging the man with questions, demanding answers now. Mia's cousin Simone leads the confrontation from just behind the view of Kaylee's cell phone. When she demands that he answer who he is, he tells them, I'm the maintenance guy. Okay, so you'd think that sort of explains how he knows Mia, since Mia works at the apartment complex. He's her coworker of sorts. Right, seems simple enough. Well, it turns out Mia had recently told her family that a maintenance worker at the apartment complex had been harassing her, making her extremely uncomfortable. On multiple occasions, she's made it clear to this individual that she was not interested. But he continued to pursue her, unwilling to accept no as her final answer. Now, with this realization, the family's lit up and they have questions. They want to know why he's watching Mia's bedroom window, why he's at the apartment complex before sunrise when he's not on shift, and how he knows Mia is missing. The maintenance man, who's become aggressive at this point, claims he last saw Mia at work around 3 p.m. However, he stopped by because a mutual friend named Toddy told him Mia was missing. 
The family doesn't buy the lie he's selling, though. They know all of Mia's friends, and she's never once mentioned someone named Toddy. The documentary has a clip showing this exact moment, this confrontation. And I wish I could include it, but we're not able to rip audio from the show for legal reasons. So I'll do my best to describe the scene. The family members talk over one another, trying to pry answers out of the maintenance man. When Simone's words cut through all of the other voices calling the maintenance guy out, she says, you keep mentioning Toddy. No one knows Toddy. Her roommates don't even know Toddy. She continues, all of a sudden, you showing up here at four o'clock in the morning looking for Mia. The maintenance man's deep voice then booms. Me and Toddy were conversating about it until finally it came up, should I go and see if I see anything? Simone's gut is telling her not to let up. This man is sketchy. She then accuses him of being the coworker Mia had complained about saying, as of right now, you have sent obsessive texts to Mia. You're fascinated with Mia. Obviously, she's missing, so we're talking to you. Meanwhile, Mia's mother is listening to the encounter through another family member's phone. And she has an intuition that this man is somehow involved in her daughter's disappearance. She later explains the feeling, saying, something about him spoke volumes, that he had something to do with Mia's disappearance. We just knew that he was lying. It's 5.25 a.m. when the officer breaks up the heated confrontation allowing the maintenance man to leave, but not before collecting his information, phone number, address, and name. His name was Armando Caballero. An arrest can't be made because even though it's weird that Armando's there and his reasoning doesn't make sense, they don't have any evidence pointing to him as the one responsible for Mia's disappearance. But that doesn't matter to Mia's family. They've now zeroed in on Armando as the prime suspect in their unofficial investigation, and they know where to find him. Because while the officer collected his information, so did Mia's family. It's pretty clear that Mia's family had a very proactive approach. They were leaving no stone unturned. They were leaving nothing up to chance. They were really making sure to make the best of those ever important first 48 hours. I can only imagine what they did next. Well, I'll tell you, they divide and conquer. By now, it's almost 7 a.m., 13 hours since Mia's last activity on her cell phone. The family hasn't slept and they won't be sleeping for a long time because half of them are working on spreading the word about Mia's disappearance, printing flyers, distributing said flyers, working on a social media campaign and searching areas she was known to frequent. But the other half, I love this other half, was a group of four women, Kaylee, Mia's grandmother, and two others. They visit Armando's apartment complex to keep a close eye on him. An hour later at 8 a.m., the foursome arrives at Armando's apartment complex and they're met with a surprise encounter. Armando's only feet away in the parking lot, standing outside of his car, cleaning it, going through things and taking stuff out, including blue latex gloves and a pink blanket. I'll never forget the moment in the documentary that shows this footage because the moment he pulls the blanket out of the car, the family gasps. And Mia's grandmother can't believe her eyes as she says, that is my blanket. The grandmother begins crying and Kaylee instructs the others to call the police. Remember, she's using her phone to record. The grandmother goes on to say that that blanket was a gift she had given Mia. And then he walked away with the blanket under his arm, presumably to his apartment. As one of the relatives calls the police, another updates the rest of the family. While that's happening, Armando comes back outside 
and the voices in the car get his attention. He approaches them, circling the car like an animal in a cage. He's menacing as he tells them, get out of the car, but they ignore him, choosing not to engage. Armando goes straight to his car, tearing out of the parking lot, but it just so happens that as Armando left the parking lot, Mia's brother Marlon and their dad, Marlon Sr., were pulling in. He made a U-turn and went after Armando in his own car. They followed him for miles before getting Armando to pull over, and they demanded that he tell them where Mia was. But he acted dumb, saying that he didn't know anything. While that encounter's happening, the police arrive at Armando's apartment, where the women are waiting for them. The authorities call Armando and tell him to return. So, 20 minutes later, he arrives. He gives them permission to enter his apartment, and that's what happens. Armando, an officer, and a friend of Mia's enter the apartment together. They were terrified to find Mia inside the apartment, but she wasn't there, and neither was her blanket that they had witnessed Armando carrying inside. The family and authorities alike speculate that as Armando drove away from his apartment, he had called one of his roommates and instructed them to dispose of the blanket. However, that's never been proven and it's never been recovered, so we really don't know. Despite the film evidence of him being in possession of Mia's blanket and everything else they've witnessed, there still isn't enough probable cause to arrest or detain Armando. And it's frustrating for the entire Marcano family and the authorities who acknowledge that Armando seems to know something. So they turn up the heat. They hold a press conference with Sheriff John Mina naming Armando as a person of interest in Mia's disappearance. Within hours of that press conference, investigators uncovered damning evidence against Armando. As they analyzed the data from the complex's key fob system, remember, he's the maintenance guy. And because he works as the maintenance guy at the Arden Villas, he's in possession of a key fob, granting him access to all of the apartments in the complex, a sort of modern master key. But every time that key fob is used, the program records the time and apartment number. And it just so turns out that Armando used his key fob to enter Mia's apartment at approximately 4.36 p.m., about a half hour before her shift at the leasing office ended. Just to reiterate what I said, but in the sheriff's own words, Sheriff Mina says, quote, we know that a maintenance-issued master key fob, which Caballero was known to be in possession of, was used to enter Mia's apartment Friday afternoon at about 4.30. This would have been about 30 minutes before she should finish her shift at the apartment complex. That same system recorded Mia entering her apartment around 5 p.m. As we know, that's when she stopped communicating shortly afterward, 5.06 p.m. to be exact. Remember, she received that text, what time, read it, and then never responded. As I was researching this case, I just couldn't help but wonder what Mia's reaction would have been. The entire case is horrific, but this is an especially sobering moment. Home is supposed to be where you're safe from the dangers of the outside world, and Armando violated that by breaking in and laying in wait for her. But back to the investigation, this is the physical evidence needed to prove Armando had been inside Mia's apartment. And now they could move forward with arresting and charging Armando with burglary. And I know you're probably wondering why burglary and not kidnapping or murder. They couldn't prove that yet, but they had a strong suspicion that Mia was no longer alive and this was used to get him off the streets and into handcuffs. In the meantime, they continued building a case against Armando for Mia's presumed murder. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they haven't even brought him in for questioning just yet. 
that was their next step. But when officers went to Armando's apartment to bring him into custody, they couldn't find him. He was in the wind. Authorities issued an APB, All Points Bulletin, on Armando and his silver car. Meanwhile, Mia's family were still focused on the investigation and still continuing to zero in on Armando. They conducted a background search, discovering that he had a colorful past filled with arrest as a result of violent criminal activities. This only added to the urgency to find him. As a result of the APB, his face was all over the news, but detectives would never be able to interrogate him because on September 27th, the case took an unexpected turn. Investigators were led to a gruesome discovery at an apartment complex in Seminole County, where Armando used to work. There was a storage unit that had been locked from the inside, and when the maintenance workers were trying to get inside, they found Armando dead. He had died by suicide. They recognized him immediately and contacted authorities. Because Armando didn't leave a note, his death left more questions for authorities and Mia's family that they desperately needed answers to. Like, what happened to Mia and where is she? Ema recalls this moment as, quote, complete defeat. I knew he hurt my child. I knew he did that. The least he could have done was told us where she was. At this point in the investigation, it's clear to the family that Armando had killed Mia. Investigators seemed to agree because they were searching swamps and rivers, focusing their search on an area where Armando's GPS coordinates pinged the night Mia disappeared. His phone pinged 17 miles west of Mia's apartment, in a rundown area with lots of abandoned buildings surrounded by waist-high brush and weeds. Then on October 2nd, 2021, after eight days of searching for Mia, a body was found in a wooded area near the Timber Scan apartment complex in Orlando, Florida. It was then positively identified as Mia. She was wearing jeans, a bra, and a robe. Her purse was found nearby containing the shirt that she was last seen wearing. There was black duct taped around her neck, ankles, and wrist, which were bound behind her back. The coroner's report states that it was apparent Mia was the victim of some type of assault and that it was possible the duct tape on her neck could have been used to cover her nose or mouth. The report also states that Mia was found nearly completely skeletonized and in an advanced putrefactive decomposition. The cause of death was determined to be homicide by undetermined means. The Orange County Chief Medical Examiner who performed the autopsy, Joshua D. Stephanie, reported that there was no identifiable evidence of trauma. This was due to the advanced decomposition of Mia's body. He also wrote, quote, in my opinion, the manner in which she was bound with multiple restraints and her disposition in an abandoned area of an apartment complex indicates some type of assault. But because of the lack of any identifiable soft tissue injuries due to advanced decomposition, the cause of death is a homicide by undetermined means. This, of course, is an effort to explain the reasons behind the manner of death. Because Armando died by suicide, the case is closed and there are no further prosecutions pending. However, investigators truly believe that Armando was the only person responsible for Mia's death. Mia's funeral was held on October 10th, 2021. It was held in her hometown of Cooper City, Florida. There were 2,000 people in attendance of her service. People came from across the U.S., Trinidad, and the British Virgin Islands. Her casket featured a photo of her and was painted royal blue, which was her favorite color. Her family eventually filed a wrongful death lawsuit against her apartment complex and the company that operates the complex in connection with her death. 
They allege negligence because the company didn't do what they should have to protect Mia from a coworker. Since her death, Mia's family has started the Mia Marcano Foundation, and they've also introduced Mia's Law, which tackles the policies surrounding the safety and security of individuals in apartment complexes. The Florida State Senate unanimously approved the bill in March of 2022. Before we end today's episode, I want to bring us back to talking about who Mia was. She was involved in cheerleading, modeling, pageantry. Her cousin Kaylee says that when she hit the stage, she had a mission. Mia excelled in everything she set her mind to from going on to win numerous pageants, cheerleading events, and junior queen of the band for years. But she was also really funny. Her cousin Kaylee mentions that she was very sarcastic and very dry, and she was whip smart. Because of who Mia was, she was beloved by all. Her mom, Ema, explains that Mia was everybody's princess. She was just exactly what you see in her pictures, just full of life, beautiful, beautiful, inside and out. That's the person I want everyone to remember when you hear the name Mia Marcano. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram at the murderdiariespodcast.com. And don't be a stranger. You can submit your requests to the Murder Diaries pod request at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and give us five stars. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.